You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Uh, here to have this week's Know Your Foe episode. We have a fantastic guest for you. Uh, all the way down from Saints Country, we have Maddie Hudak, and she is USA Today coverage for the Saints and also a, a, a sideline reporter for Tulane football. So Tulane having a pretty decent season. Maddie, how you doing? I'm good. Like you said, having a great season on the college side of things, and uh, Saints got a shout out last weekend. So good time for us uh, in football country here. All right. Outstanding. So uh, as always, we'll, we'll go through this again. I need to shout out to our sponsor first, Liquid Death, the water that will murder your thirst. Uh, thanks again for uh, sponsoring us and uh, hope folks out there will give their product a try. They've been good to us. Uh, like to start always with the offseason changes that went on with the Saints. Uh, take us kind of through that in your own words. Well, the biggest one is at the top, right? It's the turnover at head coach and really the tandem of a great quarterback and a great head coach that don't come along very often um, if for several years at that. And it's hard to say when the saints will get to a place like that again. But I think initially at the beginning of the season, you saw how much Sean Payton really brought in terms of value in his innovative creativeness on the offense, especially um, things are certainly starting to kind of click on that aspect, but Dennis Allen being a defense guy, it kind of seemed like that was where more of the emphasis went, but there was a lot of turnover on that side of the ball too. So he's kind of looking at a completely new secondary compared to 
last season where the Saints very much had, you know, a defined free safety in Marcus Williams and a, a strong safety in Malcolm Jenkins uh, at that point in his career. Um, I know Dennis Allen had kind of envisioned a more versatile role at that safety position, wanting to have two interchangeable guys with complementary skill sets to do those disguised looks. What, one thing I always say when when people have interchangeable safeties, it usually means they have two strong safeties. This is a good okay. situation to have is have two free safeties, right? And and then, then you really can have interchangeable people. But uh, I was just using the terminology that he had said over the offseason. <laughs> not beating on you, believe me. <laughs> but Marcus yeah. Williams, we've really appreciated having him in Baltimore. And and the point I was going to make is that with with him and, say, Geno Stone on the back end, or he, he and even Chuck Clark, you really have the ability to have multiple guys who who can play the back end. And it's, uh, it, it is great to great that when you have it. Yeah. I, Marcus Williams range is certainly missed at that. I think that's something that got a little bit lost. Uh, I, I think the Tyron Matthew signing brought a lot of hometown nostalgia along with it. Uh, and Marcus may, I thought he was kind of the quieter, but almost stronger signing given that, he seems to have a little less tread on him and he played a more versatile role and looking at his tape, it's really hard, you know, when it's a team that's not doing well, like the New York jets at the time and trying to assess someone at safety who has to deal with the communication of people everywhere around them. Uh, so I was looking forward to seeing how they kind of use that vision of those two safeties with complementary skill sets in, in those two players. And I'd say they're close, but I don't think it's as close to the vision as perhaps Dennis Allen might have liked out of them. And I, again, I think if you had them a few years younger, it might have been different. But it's also hard to ignore so many injuries that have happened in the secondary with Marshawn Lattimore being out now for several weeks at this point, uh, going into the Arizona Cardinals game. The CB2 Paulson Adebo is deemed out an hour before the game. And then Bradley Roby, who's kind of been almost the jack of all trades secondary fill-in goes out in the first few series of that game too. So then you have a rookie in Elante Taylor and Chris Harris Jr., I believe, playing quarterback. And so how are you kind of able to evaluate the secondary as a whole at that point? I did feel like the Raiders game was the closest to full strength, barring Marshall and Lattimore's absence that we've seen in a while. And you could tell just in the way they employed personnel, I just looked this up out of curiosity and they played a ton of dime defense mm -hmm. against the Raiders. It was all in pass defense, obviously, but they were playing it on about 17% of season snaps and they had 20 of those total 88 on last Sunday. And to me, that really allowed guys like Justin Evans, who I haven't really brought up. He's someone that I really liked from a trait perspective. And he came with almost, you know, no tread on the tires from Tampa Bay I, I, outstanding stuff. I mean, for, for starters, any girl who could talk about the dime defense, any person, I don't want to, I don't want to say this. Who talks I'm about a the secondary like yes. person. So yeah, there you go. Um, uh, really love the dime here, here in Baltimore, what it's done. What, here's what I want to ask you about uh, what the saints have gotten out of the dime. D do they have a situation now at the weak side linebacker spot, which I assume is the, is the, is the person who's going out for the dime to enter. Right. Okay. It depends. All right, so they, they bring up oh, – well, tell me how they play dime. They – so I'm looking at this, and, and sometimes they say it's dime, and then it's more of a linebacker dropping back into coverage. But I think they – I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I suppose that you have to end up subbing someone. I think it just kind of depends on what the set is. And it probably would be Pete Werner because 
he's not exactly the blitzer back in that defense. And quite honestly, the reason I got a little caught up is because of Caden Ellis, who's almost the dime insert at linebacker where they take both Davis and Werner off the field because that guy just really likes to blitz. Uh, and so he's kind of often more uh, than not out there in that dime personnel package. But otherwise, I, it's usually Pete Werner going off the field, even though I, I think he has been the best player, arguably, but certainly the best defender on the team through eight weeks now, and especially in coverage. But that's where you see Justin Evans come in, and that's where you see kind of all of the disguised looks we were seeing in training camp. It's been really disappointing kind of seeing how versatile they all looked and I know that injuries happen, they're unavoidable, and teams have to adjust, but it just felt like they kind of slipped back into, okay, we're just going to go put a single high safety back there with P.J. Williams. And P.J. Williams, I think, is a really great, again, kind of jack-of-all-trades guy, but being back there alone at free safety at this point is probably not your best option. And it just, again, it felt in terms of seeing that kind of stuff, like them employing so much time personnel and – leading with nickel really barely using any base at all. And it's something I've seen them use quite a bit more this season. And I think that's the play of Warner and then the health of that uh, secondary, including the loss of CJ Gardner Johnson, which I know wasn't an off season move. I guess it actually was, it was pretty much right before the season started. And I think that's the biggest you know question mark that's still left to be solved and kind of how they've been accounting for that in terms of, everything else with the injuries has been a little fascinating to watch, but it seems like they're all kind of finally starting to play as a whole. Okay. So we can go this in any order you want. I don't want to over direct this, but I kind of, I, I want to go back to the off season changes and then we'll come back to, to how they play past defense and whatnot and, and, and get back into some of those. Dying My brain's questions. happy to go. Yeah, I, well, mine too. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wanderer as well, but uh, other, what, what else did the, the, the saints draft and maybe talk a little bit about free agency first. Yeah. Um, again, you know, May and Matthew, I think Jarvis Landry was one of those really quiet but strong offseason signings because it's hard for me again to evaluate because I'm thinking of when he was playing on the field, it was with Jameis Winston at quarterback, and now he's been hurt and Andy Dalton's been at quarterback. So it, I, it's yet to see how he plays with him, but he just kind of felt like that reliable Emmanuel Sanders type guy that the Saints have tried to bring on as a free agent in previous seasons. And he immediately came on and, and was consistent in his production. Uh, Andy Dalton to me is actually one of the strongest off season signings in my opinion, because I think the saints have a problem at quarterback and I don't think that it was solved heading into the season. And I think the really strong push for Deshaun Watson and the fact that they were all in, if he accepted the terms of their deal showed to me that they weren't sold on Jameis Winston as a future. And so thinking about that, thinking about the fact that, he had to beat Taysom Hill in a quarterback competition the season prior. And then he comes out there with a broken back and apparently, you know, screwed up tendons in his ankle. And it's hard as outsiders to evaluate what's going on, but the fact that he's been benched and it's not due to injury to me, that becomes Andy Dalton as one of the more valuable players. And I, I think one of the key things looking forward as a franchise quarterback, and I think Andy, Andy Dalton is the right bridge. So they're not really paying anybody a quarterback this year, are they? Unless it's, unless it's uh, uh, Taysom Hill, right? I was going to make that joke that yeah. it's the Taysom Hill contract, even though he's arguably showed his value. But yeah, they're they're play, paying pennies at quarterback at this point. Okay. So so Jameis is Jameis has void years on his contract, I think, but but is twelve million something like that? 
Well, it, it's not that much. I believe it's two years. Okay. Yeah, they uh, signed him to back-to-back two-year contracts, which again, just another sign of. Oh, that you're right. 20, 22 and twenty-three there. Okay, so he's got a he's got a fifteen million dollar. No, he doesn't. He's a four million dollar cap hit this year. It's it's all incentive based, from what I recall. Um, okay. Which again, you know, kind of looking at those signs, I think a lot of people saw it as they're not totally sold on him, but they're giving him the opportunity to kind of make that money. But to me, again, when you looked at that in the succession of events with the, the Watson push and then, you know, calling him to get off a plane to Indianapolis and then offering him a highly incentive based contract, to me, that's usually the sign of you kind of have to prove it fast. And so unfortunately, he's really losing out on money uh, on the bench right now. And he's probably going elsewhere last next season. And I really wouldn't blame him at this point. Are you guys still noticing that there's these strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section at your local grocery store? Well, that's because it's not beer. It's mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called liquid death. Why is it liquid death? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst, and its infinitely recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring a death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of the profits of every can sold to help kill that plastic pollution. And you guys know me. I come on here and tell you a story about how I've been using it that week and kind of form people as I'm drinking water. Well, I got a new one this week. I'm not going to tell you what I did. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do because this week is Halloween. So Monday night, I'm taking the kids around. And I know there's some people that are handing out beer and shots and stuff. But I don't want to do that when I'm around my kids. So when I'm dragging my two eight-year-olds around and going door to door, I'll be dragging the wagon with the cooler of liquid death. So I'll be handing out tall boys of water to parents. And hey, if a kid asks, I can actually give it to a kid as well because all it is is water straight from the Alps. Go on and get Liquid Death. Get it today. Get it ready for Halloween. Uh, you go get Liquid Death at your local Harris Teeter or 7-Eleven or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com forward slash film study. That's liquiddeath.com slash film study. How uh, uh, how do Saints fans feel right now about the Deshaun Watson deal not have, coming to fruition? Depends on who you ask. Uh, that was a hard thing, just being a woman in sports and trying to just speak about that with any form of intelligence because there are a lot of people that just mm-hmm. simply don't care and see Deshaun Watson as a really good quarterback. To me, I look at the fact that someone wants to kind of sit out because they don't like the conditions of their team. And I'm wondering how their competitive toughness factors into that aspect. I'm looking at how he almost kind of paraded around, like he was, uh, you know, hosting a season of the bachelor and he was the main contestant kind of seeing all these rappers come out from Atlanta and just the red carpet rollout for this guy that's looking at 24 potential sexual assault allegations was just really hard, like, again, to discuss in general. Uh, I think most people are glad, especially because, again, he would have at this point not even seen the field by now. So you're just kind of putting yourself, again, kind of back in that hole. I've been kind of looking at just the trend of replacing a franchise quarterback in history since Drew Brees' final season. And I guess you could argue getting a player like Deshaun Watson at, I believe, age 24 at that point – is just as good as drafting one, but they would have had to give up the farm draft picks, which they kind of did. And that's also a discussion for a later point, but players, they have no cap space moving forward. And if he ends up not being the guy, you are just hamstringed in a way that 
also includes all these off the field issues. And on the converse, if you go to the draft, you have someone on a rookie contract and you don't have all of those kind of hamstringed things around it. So my only thing is I really have issue with the Saints kind of flippantly trading away that first round draft pick. Are Chris Olave and Trevor Penning worth it? I think Chris Olave, 100% yes. But to me, if you don't have a franchise quarterback, it really doesn't matter. And they did turn it around this week. And I think that they will start to kind of win more games moving forward. But it got to a point where Saints might have a top five pick in a pretty heavy quarterback draft class, especially compared to last year when they arguably could have taken Kenny Pickett. And I think that there's a case for and against that. Uh, I, I tended to be kind of higher on him than most. I know a lot of people had just very varying opinions and that was shown through the draft uh, at quarterback last year, but it, that that's a little hard to swallow. The only thing being the fact that I am all but certain Sean Payton is coming back to coach next season. And think people keep forgetting that the saints are going to recoup a first round pick for that. It's likely not going to be in the same position as their original slot, but saints are known to make trades. And to me, that's again, why I think Andy Dalton was one of those more key signings. And I think he's someone they should think about signing to a two or three year deal, trading up, all of the draft picks at that point, if they think that their franchise quarterback is in this draft and that's kind of the path to their future that I see making the most sense. Now I know in 2018, when uh, the saints traded up to number 14 and drafted Javenport, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That Deuce Windham, And I know we, we, we both know him from our, from our production meeting talk uh, was really in favor of, of them drafting Lamar Jackson. At that point, he thought that that uh, that's what the Saints were really trying to do, but to go up to 14. Uh, was that the right time to get a franchise quarterback at that point with Breeze still having, what, a year left or, or maybe two? Well, I would argue that they actually screwed it up the year prior because they had Patrick Mahomes right in their sights. Yeah. And that was kind of the whole point of my it was a now four part series that I just kind of wrote the epilogue of, if you will, after doing a three-part one back in 2020, looking at teams that pushed the quarterback out a year early, kind of going to that Bill Walsh quote, if it's better to get a player out the door a year too early than a year too late, looking at the Packers and their just, again, continuation of success. Ironically, the Chargers, who arguably have had one of the more stable quarterback situations in a continual manner, given that they pushed Drew Brees out for Phillip Rivers, and then they kind of pushed Phillip Rivers out for Justin Herbert, and they seem to have really done it right. And then you look at the Broncos on the other side where, yes, they won a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning, but he was the first quarterback that really had anything of value after John Elway had retired almost 20, you know, 20 or 30 seasons before that. And now they're in a situation where Russell Wilson is not panning out in the way I guess they had immediately hoped they signed him to a massive contract. And that's just, again, this weird free agency rent a quarterback situation that's kind of been going on as of late. Just because Tom Brady did it does not mean that other quarterbacks are all going to be able to do that. And it's different when it's Matt Stafford, who's been basically, you know, wasting away in Detroit and there's a Super Bowl ready team. And, and he kind of is that missing piece. I don't know if Denver was as self-aware in their evaluation of where their team was at. And I mean, Nathaniel Hackett just has not had the situational management of games whatsoever to even be looking to run into the postseason at this point. So just looking at kind of all those things, 
I know the Saints were really high on Patrick Mahomes and they were one pick away from drafting him. And I know Sean Payton has told his story where Drew Brees actually came back early from a fishing trip with Zach Streif, who was one of our offensive linemen at the time. And he walked in the room and he was like, hey, Drew, I'm just letting you know if this guy's available, we're, we're drafting Patrick Mahomes. And, and Drew, to my knowledge, was understanding of it because, again, it's that same idea of the Aaron Rodgers and what they did in Kansas City with Alex Smith of having him sit for two or three years. And then when Breeze retires, now you have that quarterback. So that, to me, was really the kind of the fatal error that I think they made. Uh, I've, I've always been curious about the Lamar Jackson thing because you're right. It, it, it was another situation where – he also was available and they traded up and not for a quarterback. And I know they really liked someone like Josh Allen, perhaps the top seven wasn't feasible at that point, but I think, I don't know. I've been having this like weird moment of trying to figure out if it's the quarterback or the system for the saints and why Sean Payton was trying to kind of push the Taysom Hill aspect so much. And I think, really what the vision was, was a counterpart to Alvin Kamara in a way where one of them is not necessarily the star, but they're kind of a two-headed monster. And I don't know if Lamar Jackson is just too powerful as his own runner to have that same type of vision, but it's hard to say now that they they shouldn't have drafted Lamar Jackson, but the fact that they just didn't think someone was going to jump them when they were so high on Patrick Mahomes, to me, if it's your franchise quarterback and you think that might be him, trade up and get him because the Saints do it for every other position, especially defensive end. Right. All right. Outstanding stuff. Uh, key injuries right now with the Saints. Well, Michael Thomas is apparently getting surgery and going on IR with some misdiagnosed toe injury. Um, I think there's a colossal misunderstanding of what turf toe actually is in the first place. And it's interesting because I feel like there's been so many recent injuries like Patrick Mahomes in that Super Bowl where all of a sudden he was very mortal back there. And it, it was very obvious that was affecting him. But, you know, players lose seasons. We have a, a guy on Tulane right now with turf toe who is hoping to come back for the final few games. But that takes weeks. And so just I think people think it's an actual toe when it's not a toe. Mm-hmm. It's that tendon system. And so all this stuff has come out that they misdiagnosed the toe. And it's, it's really just such a bizarre conversation, but I'm curious as to what foot it's on. And I know it's, that's one of those kind of annoying things to me about injury reports is you don't always get which side the digit is on, because I think it all goes back to that ankle injury. And I had a high ankle sprain. I used to play competitive soccer and I couldn't get back to where I was. And I went to physical therapy, took years and it was just that paying every couple of times I kicked a ball and the amount of time that Michael Thomas missed with the amount of setbacks he had. And I think playing through it, I understand why he did it. And I, you know, if I was a player in that situation, I would too. I think he perhaps cherished Drew Brees more than a lot, a lot of players on that team. He really seemed to have just such a meaningful connection with him. And I think he was literally willing to let his body give out on the field to be a part of Drew's last game. But that unfortunately I think might have lasting effects. 
So that's, uh, you know, the Ravens went through something similar with Jonathan Ogden uh, at the end of his career with a, with an extensive turf toe time. He was on the field, off the field, lost extensive periods of time. And then honestly, it really ended his career after the 07 season. Uh, frustrating to us too. Um, about the injury reports, I, I, I you know, I, I don't know if you attend camp typically or what you do to, to, to be at the interviews or you're, you're on whatever. Okay. So I, one of the questions I, I would have is, how open is your is your current leadership in terms of really explaining what injury situations are? Because the Ravens definitely follow the Belichick model of giving you very, very little. Yeah, well, Sean Payton was very much like that, and they're very much like that at Tulane, too. But Dennis Allen has been a little more forthcoming, but the Saints still do keep their cards close to their chest. Um, and I know that fans want instant gratification and feel like they yeah. – they, have to have answers, but that's opponent competitive advantages that you're giving away in doing so. Uh, You know, where I have my kind of point about if it's the left or right side, I don't think as much gives away to an opponent, unless again, it's a situation like Thomas, where you're thinking this might be kind of a momentum building thing on one side of his body. But yeah, I, I don't know why people expect head coaches to come out at the beginning of the week. And that was really what was surprising about them. Uh, naming Andy Dalton the starter so early going into the Raiders game because that was really what Sean Payton did when Drew Brees was hurt every time in the last few seasons. No one really thought it would be Taysom Hill until it was, but he certainly didn't let anyone know until the last possible minute. And I always just think of Bill Belichick listing Tom Brady as questionable with a shoulder injury on the report (laughs) every day, a week of the season because he didn't like the designations. And it really is so much unnecessary verbiage at this point, but it is hard when this is the second season in the row now where they've declined to put Michael Thomas on IR to start the season. And then all of a sudden he ends up on IR and it's okay. Could his roster spot have been used for someone else? I don't know if it's necessarily that deep because the saints have had so many injuries. I think they've had more trouble fielding players than people taking away active roster spots, but it goes to this point of what's going on here. Is this something that Michael Thomas is kind of fighting and thinks that he's closer along than he is? Is the medical staff thinking that he's not as far along as he is, but that happening kind of two seasons in a row. I think that's where when you do hold injuries close to your chest, that kind of stuff, I understand why fans kind of get this sense of distrust and, make jokes about whether or not Marshawn Lattimore needs like a kidney transplant at this point, because, (laughs) you know, he got hit hard in the abdomen and then we haven't really heard any type of valuable information since. And I do think there is a level where, you know, if they could just say something about whether it's a muscle strain or something else, as long as the injury status is, is still the same in terms of practicing or not practicing, I think a little distinction and sometimes would help, but then you see an elbow show up on there and it's, you know, how deep can we kind of get about this kind of thing? So I think that usually mom is the better approach in general with injuries, but it is hard sometimes as a sideline reporter, really having to basically ignore everyone asking about Tulane until the last minute. And and you know that you have a, you have a segment each half or or at halftime where you talk to the coach. So one of the things you always want to talk about is injuries, right? Yeah. Well, again, at, um, Tulane, my job is kind of to go be a spy almost and just kind of patrol the sideline and see who went into the 
locker room who came out who has a brace on because again, Willie is a little mum with injury stuff, but we always have kind of that closed door meeting on Thursdays and it's about 10 minutes before kickoff that I kind of give the injury report at that point. And then during the game, it's just kind of going off of eye checks on the field. Okay. All right. So we've, yeah, I think we can all appreciate seeing sideline reporters being that spy talking about, and he's up on the table with so-and-so and you're just, you're just describing what you're seeing and allowing them to draw their conclusions from that. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, a, a, a job a lot of people, I think, really would love to have. I mean, is, do you get that a lot? Do you get a lot of envy of the position you have, but both from men and women? Yeah, it was, it's funny because it was it happened very last minute and unexpectedly last season. Um, you know, I was kind of looking at other positions and then – all of a sudden they really wanted a sideline reporter for Tulane who was able to travel to all of the home games. And so I get a call from, uh, he's currently the play caller for the Pelicans. His name's Todd Graffinini, but he was the voice of Tulane Greenway for, I believe 27 years. And he's telling me, I, I need to call the new play play by play caller, Corey Glore immediately about sideline role. And, and within like two weeks, I'm suddenly at training camp. I came from a psychology and legal background. I only went into sports during the pandemic, I just followed football, you know, all my life. Um, my family, my mom is from New Orleans. So we were, we actually came down to New Orleans for when the Saints won the Super Bowl, but I'm also an only child and I always felt like kind of a talking point with my dad. And we always just both really enjoyed the mental aspect of the game, but it's fulfilling in a way I didn't necessarily expect because that relationship building, and I think it might be just kind of different at the college level where they really are just 20 year old guys out there, but they, they wear their emotions on their sleeve and I've seen the highs, I've seen the lows, but just to really feel like you're in the mix. And, and there's just this adrenaline of being on the sideline during games that I didn't think I would ever really have the opportunity to have. And now I can't imagine not being on the field in that manner. So it really is both, you know, personally fulfilling as an alumni of Tulane, but it's just been such an unexpected surprise. And I, I really like being their sideline reporter. Very, very cool. Definitely a very cool opportunity here. Now we, we, we need to talk really briefly about the, the Saints long run cap situation, obviously coming out of the Drew Brees era and some of the, the pandemic in particular, I guess the, the Saints were one of the teams that was most underwater. How are they digging their way out of that? Yeah. So it all starts with Drew Brees. And again, kind of going back to just my thesis at this point on franchise quarterbacks, when you got to go all in for that last couple of pushes, signing guys like Jared Cook and Emmanuel Sanders on these contracts that aren't really sustainable, that's when guys like Trey Hendrickson, Sheldon Rankins, Malcolm Brown are out the door because you can't afford them because you guys stayed with that franchise quarterback and tried to kind of make those last pushes. And I'm not knocking them for it. It's just kind of that's door number one or door number two. The pandemic obviously really did not help matters. Um mm-hmm. But I mean, they they managed to clear the space to shy, to sign Deshaun Watson if they were in the position to do so. So I know it always kind of becomes this folklore joke about the Saints cap situation being fake and you know Taysom Hill's contract being fake and all this. But to me, it's more the Saints are just creative and they have kind of shown people how to do it. And I think some teams are starting to follow suit, but just feels like no one else is really 
delved into the creativity with the contracts that the Saints have really done, but it's also their approach to free agency versus the draft. And there are some people that would argue it's a mistake to let guys like Marcus Williams and Trey Hendrickson go. But then you look at Pete Werner coming out of the draft. You look at Paulson Adebo, the fact that he was a third year pick out our third round pick out of Stanford. who didn't play it down a football the year before that it was in second team snaps up until the week before last season when Ken Crawley went down with an injury and all things considered, he did impeccably his first season out there. And then you have Alante Taylor, who a lot of people did not understand that draft pick on draft night. And I'll admit I was a little salty because Jaquan Brisker was really that safety I was coveting. Uh, Kyle Hamilton was a fever dream, but Jaquan Brisker was literally right there for the taking and the Bears scooped him up. But the second I started looking at Alante Taylor, it, it all of a sudden made a lot of sense. Um, I actually spoke with his longtime trainer and I'm planning to talk with him later this week kind of about his development, but you can just tell the character of the guys at the Saints draft. It, it really goes towards how much they value leadership in young players and it, just really football intelligence. Uh, you can tell Alante Taylor's mental processing is really there. He has spent time at quarterback spent time at wide receiver and you could see that peripheral vision of his really coming into play. But the fact that him, Pete Werner, Paulson Adebo, they've all kind of been thrust on the field in these scenarios, Alante Taylor quite unceremoniously in these last two games and no one's been scared of the moment. So they might not have the best first round uh, draft pick record going for them. And I think that's kind of their over-focus on trait-based defensive ends out of smaller schools that often are injured, but the Saints in rounds two through four, I'm almost willing to bet on every single year. So I, I get their approach to free agency. And it's also a lesson learned from back in 2015 when they signed Jairus Bird to this huge contract. He gets hurt. He wasn't the player they expected. And it put them in that dead money rollover for several years now. So I think they just kind of learned their lessons and managed the cap by being willing to let people walk that I think a lot of people wouldn't because they're confident in their draft evaluation process. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the first round did look good for the saints this year and Alave, I think was the first at number eight of a run of four wide receivers and five picks. If I recall before the Ravens, actually Jordan, Jordan Davis, and then, and Ken Kyle Hamilton, H Hamilton, you mentioned as being somebody you were interested in the saints drafting. Would you have liked him at number eight? Would you have been happy with that pick overall? I'm a defense person, so I'm biased and safety is one of my favorite positions. So I can't say that I'm giving a very objective answer at this point, but seeing Olave, no, because mm -hmm. I mean, especially after seasons after season of nameless wide receivers trying to move on from Drew Brees with a wide receiver corp of Chris Hogan, Kenny Stills, Kevin White, Marquez Callaway as wide receiver one, who was an undrafted rookie the year before that. Deontay Hardy being a very large part of the offense for his lacking in size. I mean, it's just not a path to success. So the Packers don't seem to have seen that, uh, but the Saints seem to kind of get the picture and they seem to accurately predict that run on wide receivers. Uh, I almost forgot about the first round this year because I was actually working the Pelicans playoff games while it was happening. So I was watching it on a really small screen. And remember, we were all mad that the Saints made a trade. Like, how dare they do this during the playoffs game for the Pelicans? But Chris Olave is, he's a, he's a star. I don't know 
I think the Saints could arguably be winless without him at this point, just because of the injuries to wide receiver that they've seen. Uh, and it was really disappointing also seeing Michael Thomas for the first time in training camp this season. And then, you know, not really again, but the fact that Chris Olave has been able to take on such a role. And now with two quarterbacks seemingly having equal chemistry with both of them uh, and then Trevor Penning, it remains to be seen, but James Hurst, I think to his own credit for that being this huge talking point over the off season, losing Taron Armstead, um, who, Again, that's someone that I think had kind of implied he might have stayed if there was a different quarterback situation. And again, that all kind of goes back to everything being tied to your franchise quarterback. But I think the fact that left tackle has not been a sore spot on this offensive line at all is a really great sign because then you don't have to rush the development of someone like Trevor Penning, who seemed to be that really raw prospect. It's just the you know sense of reining it in. But I am with Dennis Allen on the sense of, you can teach a dog how to fight, but you can't teach fight in a dog. That is something, by the way, that, that the Ravens fans are going to have a hard time adapting to because James Hurst, you know, gravitated from left tackle and he was undrafted left tackle, but played for the Ravens, uh, really got uh, worked over in, in his time there at left tackle uh, would be the fair way to state it. Moved to right, uh, sorry, left guard and, and was not bad there. Actually, was was pretty decent left guard. In fact, it, it started a run of Ravens left guards who could really pull despite a lack of athleticism. Uh, mm-hmm. Bradley Bozeman was kind of that way, and and even Ben Powers right now is a, kind of a lack of an athletic guy. Uh, but they but they've made made something out of those guys. But the fact that Hurst is back playing left tackle at a reasonably high level right now is to me remarkable. It's it's one of the remarkable things in looking over this Saints team right now. Absolutely, I'm kind of the person where. If- they're not being talked about on the offensive line. It's a good thing. And again, it's the fact that you don't hear his name at all when you're talking about the O-line issues, which I think have turned a huge corner for the Saints in the last couple of weeks. But he wasn't as good at left tackle last season when he came in in relief for Taron Armstead. So I don't know if it's just the idea of consistency, but I think Cesar Ruiz has made a jump that I quite frankly didn't think was in him because he just looked so confused out there at times. And I know the Saints have this strong philosophy of year one players and year three players, but sometimes it's really hard to see the forest for the trees when you're not at year three yet with some of those guys. You think of someone like Zach Bond, and it's kind of, I don't think they have any vision for him at all for kind of where they had drafted him at that point. But him turning a corner, I think Andres Pete is playing some of his better football Eric McCoy has been great, right? And it just seems like they're all working finally again as a unit. And last year, it was hard to almost evaluate them all individually because there's so much bad play and injuries with Eric McCoy going down on the third snap of the season. And Cesar Ruiz was not a very good center last year at all. And then you just had Calvin Throckmorton kind of subbing in at places and Ryan Ramchick missing assignments because he's looking over to his right, seeing that Cesar Mm -hmm. Ruiz is missing his assignment So it's such one of those dance type of things that I think Hearst has just really fit well into it, but I didn't really think about it as much until talking just now, just how quiet the left tackle position, which is, you know, arguably the the premium offensive line position and the one that they, they drafted to replace. And the fact that we're not talking about Hearst at all is really a testament, I think, to that coaching staff. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's he's uh, certainly got, and then uh, the coaching staff is a is a uh, is probably a significant factor. I know the Ravens have had good success over the years uh, developing, in particular, offensive linemen. Uh, it's interesting that the, the Ravens had Ben Bredesen, Cesar Ruiz uh, was on that same Michigan team, and the, and the third guy is is really my guy, Michael Onwayno, who went, went to the Patriots. Right, loved him. And the, the, uh, you know, and, and I, to be honest at the time, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure whether I loved him enough that I loved him more than Bredesen at the same, at, you know, at, at, sorry, at the, at the same spot. I loved him a lot more where he's drafted. And the fact that he lasted in the sixth round and Belichick got him just pisses me off to this day. I, there's certain just draft picks. The Ravens not taking Derwin James. The Ravens not taking Michael Onwayno earlier that in, in that draft, uh, that just, still burn me up as we as we go forward let's move to the offense and 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 we'll go through this a little quicker now in terms of of the players but uh at at quarterback tell me what you've seen out of Dalton and his recent play so so I was kind of uh starting at one point I think we kind of swerved to another thing but I just feel like the system has not adapted since Drew Brees retired back there and to me Andy Dalton has been the best kind of prototype to fit that same system he's not going to be the hero and, you know, lead some mystical fourth quarter comeback, but his release is just so much quicker than Jameis Winston's. And again, I I can't really say I can evaluate Jameis Winston when it was so obvious to me that he was so injured and not really being, my, my only criticism was that it didn't seem like he was aware of his own limitations and trying the same deep ball. But the fact that that was something that was an awful throw for Jameis Winston, and that was never really, his problem, it was his strength, in fact. It was the middle of the field throws and not seeing crossing linebacker coverage that was a problem for Jameis Winston. But Andy Dalton, it hasn't seemed to matter that there's been injuries at wide receiver. He is able to kind of execute play action, and he doesn't need to make the throw that saves the day. And I remember Drew Brees had said this to Jameis Winston about it's a, you don't have to be Batman every single time. And in that same sense of kind of trying to be the hero at, at the expense sometimes of the team. Although I don't think that's really been the case with Jameis Winston in those first couple games, but I think Andy Dalton really understands that. And he he's just kind of an, a journeyman pro of just being able to execute pretty much whatever short passing game system is in there and just getting the tempo on offense. There was no tempo. There was no urgency. And the two minute offense wasn't even really that stellar for the first couple of weeks but you also have kind of not more of an excuse because you saw uh Sean Payton do it all the time last year but I think one of the quieter aspects of Andy Dalton is Taysom Hill really seeing an elevated role on the offense now that the changing of hands at quarterback has happened and even though it's rarely throwing a pass to me he has really been the x factor in the Saints offense but for one reason or another, it just seems like the O-line is blocking better. They lean more on the run game. And that's where I kind of look at the offensive coordinator, perhaps leading too much on the passing game because of a strong throwing arm in Winston. It just seems like Dalton's a more complimentary quarterback. So t- take us through what Taysom's uh, role is currently in terms of you know, how he's used on a play-by-play basis and and uh, where they where they line him up. It's a mystery quite literally every single time. And I think they finally leaned into that. I actually was one of the people that was curious about Taysom Hill's trajectory at quarterback only because I saw the vision with Alvin Kamara being there. Um, But 
now that you see him doing everything else, it's you rarely say the role of quarterback does just a disservice to a player, but Taysom Hill is such a better football player than he is a quarterback that it almost was an injustice to kind of stick him back there. I don't think there's anyone that's even come close in the NFL ever in terms of what Taysom Hill does on special teams, what he does basically playing running back. That's what I think, you know, they put him as a tight end this year and I, there's a lot of people have said Deuce Windham, I think has also said this, that if Taysom Hill had just become a tight end in the first place, he'd probably be all pro and that would probably be correct. But that guy just likes to truck people and run them over. It's also a negative uh, quality in your quarterback to have, but his ability to just continuously convert third and shorts. And there's no mystery as to what's about to transpire. And, and no one has really figured out how to stop him. I don't know why he wouldn't keep kind of doing that, but he's also on special teams again in, in punt return coverage. He's blocked uh, punts before. And I quite honestly am curious to see him play a down a pass rush just to see what he could do. Huh. But I, I think it's really the power runs that you've seen. Uh, and, and that's something that was absent in the Bengals and Cardinals game. And I think played a huge role in those losses, but looking at the Seattle game and what was really successful it was a lot of outside zone with Alvin Kamara and it was those kind of power and counter runs using the two of them back to back and actually playing them off of one another. And I think that's really where you see the, the true versatility of that backfield. Fascinating. Um, let's move on to the, if you could just take us through the offensive line quickly and you did mm-hmm. in a little ways, but I think that, that uh, when we're talking to Ravens fans, a lot of them are not going to know all the names and automatically link them up to position. So we know James Hurst at left tackle take us across the line. Yeah, so James Hurst, I'm trying to pull up the injury report because I can't remember whether or not Andres Pete was on there. Um, so it's Andres Pete at left guard. He's been here for a long time, and he's kind of caught a lot of flack. Undeserved, in my opinion, quite quite frankly. Uh, at center is Eric McCoy, and right guard Cesar Ruiz, and then right tackle is Ryan Ramchick. And there was actually a curious point over the offseason where people had wondered whether or not they were going to move Ryan Ramchick to left tackle because he does have an incentive in his contract to be paid more if he made that move. I think he didn't want to, but it, that that's kind of why the incentive was there. But yeah, left to right is Hurst, Pete, McCoy, Ruiz, and Ramchick. And then Calvin Throckmorton kind of subs in all over the place. But McCoy, Throckmorton, and... Uh, Ramchick, we're all on the injury report, is limited this week. I don't know if it was just precautionary, but that did catch my eye a little bit. So you could see uh, perhaps some other guys in the fold this weekend. All right. All right. Fair enough. Do you want to talk about, uh, let's see, we haven't talked about the wide receivers really to go through who plays slot and X and whatnot? Yeah. Again, it's it's hard because it's been different every week because the personnel keeps dropping like flies in that aspect. You know, the fact that Kevin white is back and he's actually not a problem has kind of been funny for people, but you know, Keith Kirkwood is out there at some point, Rashid Shahid. Um, I don't really know what the role is for all of these wide receivers at this point, because none of them are really the intended starters, which were Jarvis Landry, Chris Olave and Michael Thomas. Uh, not having Landry and Thomas and then Olave out with a concussion. It's really just been musical chairs back there, quite honestly. Uh, I think they've just kind of leaned more on on pass-catching tight ends with guys like Jawan Johnson 
in those kind of instances, but it just seems like they're really kind of willing to go with the run game and with the short passing games. And it doesn't really matter who it is, but yeah, again, I think the starting core is Chris Olave, Marquez Calloway, Kevin White, Keith Kirkwood, Rashid Shahid, sometimes Taysom Hill. I could be not thinking of one or the other, but it's just one of those positions where the injuries have just made it so hard to evaluate the plan. All right. Well, fair enough. Have they gotten heavier in terms of packages when they've gotten uh, thinner at wide receiver? Heavier in terms of what they're putting on the field and personnel? They put, yeah, putting them on more 12 instead of 11, more 20, even some 22 or whatever packages they might use that have only two wide receivers, or even only one. Yeah, and again, I'll go back to the Seattle game and the Raiders game and those kind of being what worked and what didn't. And a lot of the time it is those, you know, 21 personnel sets with Taysom Hill out there um, as an option. And I think they ran a wildcat at one point in the last couple of weeks, but they've also had several packages where Taysom's back there with Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara. And I don't know what you deem the personnel at that point, because I guess Taysom's technically a quarterback, but everyone knows that that's not really the case, but yeah. And leaning on blocking tight ends, they really like to have those guys in there. You guys like Nick Vanette, who is never going to be in you know the route tree, but he gets a lot of playing time because he blocks really well. Traquan Smith, I just remembered him um, because he's always injured as well. A lot of the time he's out there as a blocker too. So yeah, they're, they're certainly not leaning on those heavier sets, although I felt like they, or I'm sorry, they are leaning on those heavier sets, although I felt like they were almost kind of not doing so with Winston at quarterback despite the injuries. It almost seemed like they were kind of irritatingly sticking to you know, a three-by-one passing game type thing, which is not working with what they were able to put out there. Yeah, a lot of teams, they like to run out of 11 just to, to take an extra heavy out of the box defensively. So it's not the Ravens' way. The Ravens will get as heavy as you <laughs> as, as they as they want. In fact, I, I this is not, I don't think, generally known around the NFL, but the, the Ravens are playing the heaviest packages in recent NFL history by a wide margin. And to, to, to toss this out there, the 1999, no, sorry, the 2019 Vikings played slightly under two heavies per play. And that's the combination of six offensive linemen, tight ends, and fullbacks on any play. The Ravens are up around 2.3 heavies per play. And so the last six years, they're by far the heaviest. I think you probably have to go back decades, actually, to find a team that's played as heavy as the Ravens. So uh, defensive linemen going to be at a premium for the Saints in this game. Oh, 100%. Um, And I also, I feel like I've noticed that quite a bit with the Ravens because – in this kind of age of mobile quarterback where I think a lot of teams don't actually know what to do with them once they acquire them. Uh, I think the bears might be getting there with Justin Fields, but you know, you you just kind of see these guys go out there and draft mobile quarterbacks and then put them back as a pure pocket passer and expect those traits to be farther along than they are. And then not utilizing that skill set at all. Whereas John Harbaugh, I think really said, we're going to build an offense around Lamar Jackson. And that's exactly what they've done. And it makes, sense why wouldn't you do that kind of thing you know just because the nfl is this aerial game it's fleeting in my opinion because it's certainly not this year it's been one of the most most low scoring starts to a season i can remember i think the era of great quarterbacking is kind of shaky than it it's been in other years because you have the guys like aaron Rodgers and tom brady at the top just also kind of looking lost out there but 
kind of see the changing of the hand. And besides the younger guys like Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes, you know, a lot of it is just kind of all over the place out there, but then you have the Josh Allen's and the Lamar Jackson's and everyone's kind of been talking in, in, uh, you know, analysis of the Saints shutting out the Raiders. Okay. That's great. But Lamar Jackson's been the one quarterback that I've been staring at all season because there's one problem the Saints have. It's containing those mobile quarterbacks and they like to rush for, uh, they don't like to kind of bring those heavier packages, but if, if they have to match the Ravens, they just kind of might have to. So I'll be curious to see how much dime we see coming out of the Saints. Um, so they do use in pass rushing situations, but it's going to be a test for a unit that I think finally showed signs of life and individually and as a group, like Marcus Davenport really having the best game of his season and Peyton Turner at this point having the game of his career because he really has played in about eight matchups that I can think about and has not really been memorable to this date. And to me, defensive line can often be so mental where once you see the vision there, it just kind of keeps happening. So I'll be curious to see if that pushes them over the hump or they really kind of look like deer in headlights next week. All right. So let's flip over to the defensive side and you just, you started to talk about the defensive line a little bit when I, when I kind of prodded you there, but uh, how, how are they set for, for by, actually, before we go to that, let's talk about in the most important defensive question of all to me is how they look in basic um, uh, heavy against basic 12 and 21 personnel. And so how they look when the opponent gets heavy and then how they look when the opponent's in an obvious passing situation. And you talked a little bit about the dime being their response to obvious passing situations up to 20 dime snaps this last week, a function perhaps of having the lead. I know that's often the case in Baltimore is you have the lead, you play a ton of dime. I would say that, but I think it had more to do with the personnel that they felt would play to their best strengths at that point. And like Justin Evans to me, again, had a really strong performance and that's hard to ignore when I thought that he started off strong at the beginning of the season. And then they kind of lost the vision for him back there. And then his previously solid play at, at free safety kind of fell off, but I felt like he was really strong back there last week. And then that allowed them to have Marcus May up there alongside Tyron Matthew. And I just think Dennis Allen has always just really been such a, he's been the creative defense guy. And I think it is kind of less of a you know, symptom of having a lead. And it, it just, it sticks out to me that again, 34% of their plays. And it'd be one thing if that score was run up and it just kept going, but I don't think anyone really believed what they were seeing, especially after what we've seen on both sides of the ball for the Saints of the last uh, recent weeks out of them. But um, I'll be curious to see how they approach this because you don't see them in base defense that often, uh, really at all. They they love nickel, and I mean a lot of that I think again has to do with the players that they have. But that was C.J. Gardner Johnson who's no longer here and Chris Harris. I love him as a student of the game. Uh, and I think that he might be a valuable mentor, but I don't think that he offers at his age, you know, what CJ Gardner Johnson did either. But then in the same notion is Caden Ellis at that third linebacker going to be more valuable than having someone else out there in coverage. But like you said, 
there's really not a point in dime when you have these jumbo packages out there that are clearly out there to step the run. So I think I think we'll just see them rushing five and being more in a in a base set, but putting one of those linebackers on the line of scrimmage. So Chris Harris, this is Chris Harris, the old Bronco from years ago, right? Yeah, wow, still in the league. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. either until he was out there against the Cardinals. All right. Uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the the front seven individually. What kind of year they're having? It's again, it's been up and down, and the pass rush has kind of been shaky for two seasons in a row now. So I, it's hard to say kind of what's been going on there. But I think what happened was almost this mass exodus of the interior of the defensive line going back to that 2020 offseason. You know, you, you think about Sheree Hendrickson as that huge loss on the edge, but it's really the guys like Sheldon Rankins and Malcolm Brown and all those guys in the interior that really changed the game for the Saints in terms of their pass rush and building their team around that. You know, you hear Sean Payton say it's a passing game, so we drafted a defensive end, and that might sound odd to some people on its face, but the idea is that if the quarterback can't get the ball out, it, it's basically what the successful blueprint for the Saints, not so much this year. We'll see if they get it together. But, you know, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers, that's the best paramount example to me of shutting down a team entirely by your pass rush. Uh, but the Saints really lean on sticking to kind of those four rushers. And their linebacking duo to me is one of the best in the NFL. Um, I'm trying to think of a better tandem at this point. Uh, I, I, I can't think of who's opposite Fred Warner. Otherwise, that would probably be a really high argument for me. And I know there's been injuries at other places, but Demario Davis, at his age, doing what he's doing, and the fact that the Jets just kind of gave him over to the Saints for free. But to me, Pete Werner, I said this last week, he's playing at this point where if they had drafted him in the first round, I might be okay with it because he has been – Without question, the biggest impact person on the field, maybe, you know, Taysom Hill is second to him on the other side of the ball, but his run defense was there last year and it is stellar this season. But, you know, you saw him in training camp covering Michael Thomas in the slot and it looked kind of funny and weird. But when you lose Quan Alexander, that was their coverage guy in those situations last season. And so now Pete Werner has to really do both. And to me, he's excelled. He's forced fumbles. He's not really being picked on. And then Caden Ellis, again, has just kind of been one of those quieter but strong, productive guys. Uh, they had Chase Hansen. I can't remember if he was injured or just kind of fell out of the lineup. But I do recall him being injured back in the preseason. But the front seven, I guess, not really kind of getting there because just trying to think about all the secondary players. But it's not been the best, but it seemed like it turned a corner again last week and – not having to blitz that heavy. It's something that's interesting to me about the Saints for as much as we talk about the pass rush with them. A lot of the games, they're just not running these kind of zero blitz situations really at all. And they did quite a bit in the past, but I've seen times where their defensive end drops back into coverage and then they have two or three linebackers up there rushing the passer. You lose a lot of that with CJ Gardner-Johnson. I think that was one of the biggest losses, quite honestly, in terms of him because they have not been able to replace his short area quickness off the line of scrimmage and just ability to tear into the quarterback that's back there. So it's up and down. Um, I don't think it's going to be the reason that they'll win games. And I don't think it's going to be the reason that they'll lose games either. Um, 
seems like the Saints are kind of at a point where they could outperform expectations, but it really just seems like they're all not victims of a system because that implies a negative thing, but they really, it's really all about working in concert a lot of the time versus having stars at all these roles because injury retirements, free agency at that, they just don't have that star studded cast everywhere. Like they really have in the past. And I think this off season, to me at least signing David Onyemata and, and finding him a real counterpart at that interior defensive line is really where the saints need to kind of go. Okay. So I see he's, he's played over 300 snaps this year and I'm just looking at PFF here. But one thing I like to do is sum up the 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 defensive interior snaps, and it looks like they're playing less than two defensive linemen per snap. And this is one of the things the Ravens will certainly stretch because the Ravens are so heavy, they're going to really have to play three on, on a, a high percentage of snaps. Do you think they have some of the fatigue-proof defensive linemen, or, or is the snap capacity there and other players who maybe haven't played very much so far – to get them through a game like this? I'm not sure because I'm more inclined to say no, just because thinking about those really strong pass rush seasons, it's all been about rotation and Mm -hmm. they, they really have relied on having such depth at those positions. And like, again, kind of those smaller names like Malcolm Brown, where he's not the star of the show, but he's also in the same note of us not talking about James Hirsch on the offensive line. You're not talking about him on the bad way when he's out there and it allowed all the players to stay fresh through four quarters of the game. And I think you're seeing in-game fatigue, quite frankly, happen. The fact that Cameron Jordan is doing what he's doing and he's basically doing it all by himself with really no backup at his position with the idea of Peyton Turner, I think being his eventual replacement, but between him and Marcus Davenport not being able to, remain on the field for more than a few games at a time. Um, Tano Passanion to me was a really key offseason signing. That was two seasons ago, but I can't remember if they extended him or not. And I think he is looking at being an unrestricted free agent. And I think they need to re-sign him because he is someone that they've also slotted in at that interior. He's really versatile, Uh, but I'm trying to think who they have back there. And I mean, Shai Tuttle, Malcolm Roach, they have their moments, but it really is going to be a hard day at the offense for the Saints defense. And I'll, I'll be curious to see if they lean on that by putting the third guy out there, or like I said, just kind of overloading the linebackers on a lot of scrimmage and hoping mm-hmm. for a, a quick play rather than, you know, kind of more of a all around pressure. Okay. All right. Very interesting stuff here. Uh, so we talked a little bit about all the front seven tickets once through the secondary as well. And I guess, again, people are not going to necessarily know the name. So it's like what their role yeah. is in the secondary is important. Yep. Sure. So starting safeties are Marcus May and Tyron Matthew at this point. Uh, Marcus May typically goes back more at free safety and then Tyron Matthews in the box. But again, the role with them, the division was really those disguised looks. Um, outside of them, it is quite literally a revolving door every week to start the year was Marshawn Lattimore opposite Paulson Adebo uh, with Bradley Roby in the slot. And then Paulson Adebo got hurt. So Bradley Roby became that corner cornerback. Justin Evans moved into the slot. And that's where, again, I, I think the CJ Garner Johnson trade was a little hasty. And I think it was a little arrogant because I 
think that they had the think they had the personnel to replace him and, and they didn't account for the fact that the secondary is one of the most injury prone positions out there. But Marshawn Lattimore has been injured for the past few weeks. So again, we have a rookie out there in Alante Taylor out of Tennessee who his first his real first start was when Lattimore actually got ejected uh, with Mike Evans in the week two game against Tampa Bay. And Tom Brady, I think, targeted him one time and he broke up the pass. And that said a lot to me about his mental toughness. So he has been starting quarterback, guarding DeAndre Hopkins and Devontae Adams and shut them down two weeks in a row. He's been really impressive to me. And I don't think he's you know getting enough credit for what he can do with the line of scrimmage in terms of press. He was just really Devonte Adams was getting mad at times. You could tell because he could not get off and was just disrupting the timing. And you'd see Derek Carr look there and you wonder why the pass rush was getting off. And it's guys like Alante Taylor with his, his linear speed and his ability. He had the top speed, I think at 1.20 miles per hour. And he is running like really deep routes with those guys. So him and Paulson Adebo, I believe, are the starting cornerback tandem. At slot, I think it is Chris Harris Jr. at this point. And then the guys that kind of come in, uh, Justin Evans, I think, I don't know if he's going to have a role just in terms of opponent specifics because, again, he's kind of that one that they can bring on to shine and dime, and it does not seem like he will really be of value in that aspect. Um, although I was kind of curious to see if he was going to be that person they developed at the slot, but that's kind of what it is. It's, it's May Matthew at safety. And then at this point, Alante Taylor and Paulson Adebo and Chris Harris Jr. And that is certainly not what everyone was covering in training camp this off season, but it was surprisingly a lot better than I expected um, uh, against the Raiders. I want to go back and look at that Raiders game and see exactly how they shut down the passing game. And that that's uh, obviously shutting out anybody is impressive. Shutting out some people, shutting out a team when you, when you have a depleted secondary, very impressive and hard to do. You know, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. So I take us through now a lot of these guys and I put these in the notes here about how are they going to defend Bateman Andrews and the Ravens run game? Well, you only got one of the three there. <laughs> it's the Ravens right. run game. So I think Andrews is probably not going to play. Uh, Bateman yeah. today was just, just, uh, had surgery and is out for the season. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, Gus Edwards who, you know, came back and really has fueled the run game last week. I, if I had to guess, I'd say he's probably not going to play this week because the Ravens have a bye after it. This is right. an NFC game, kind of a limited value in terms of tiebreakers. Uh, not zero, but but less value than than winning, obviously, a conference game or certainly a divisional game. And, and so you know, the Ravens may look at this as, as trying to get some of their team healthy. Uh, so maybe it comes down to, again, uh, how do you expect them to really defend Lamar Jackson? Uh, in terms of of what they will do special that's that's different from what we've seen otherwise, it, I think it is the million dollar question this weekend because you know even without all those personnel which cause enough problems on their own, Lamar Jackson to me is really kind of the start and the end of this. Just his his quickness and ability to really just take off, roll out, and and again lacking that depth at the defensive line when those guys have to chase someone around outright at the beginning, it gets really tough. So I, I, quite frankly, again, I think the key to this is who is the best person that they can add as an additional pass rusher. That's not a defensive lineman and has that quickness and maybe has the ability to shut down a play before everything is able to roll out and get going. Because I, I just don't think that 
the defensive line is able to kind of play full force quarters against a guy like Lamar Jackson. And like you said, the packages that they're going to be using, but I'm going to, I'm very curious to see how Pete Werner and Demario Davis do in that aspect, because if he only gets to the second level of the field and that's fine in my book, just because uh, with saints with mobile quarterbacks, it's a bad day at the office. And it's been like that for several seasons now. I mean, the Eagles, the saints literally cannot beat them because they somehow have not figured out how to contain Jalen hurts. So the last time I think they played Lamar Jackson, he was a rookie. uh, And like I said, it was this first signs of life this last week with the pass rush, but a lot of that had to do again with the lockdown coverage that I don't think is necessarily going to be necessary in this matchup. So do we see someone, I I just think it's going to be creative blitz packages to be quite honest with you, because I just think like utmost confusion and chaos is really their path to victory versus trying to run, you know, different defensive fronts with personnel that just aren't really ready to do so for a, a full game. All right. That's certainly, it that has been a formula that's worked against Jackson the last five or six weeks. And he's been in a, frankly, a little bit of a slump since about the first three games of the year. It's been getting after him before he has a chance to really get outside the pocket. Uh, a lot of uh, blitzes that aren't red or green, meaning it's not a linebacker that's coming immediately. It's not also a linebacker who's waiting to see if a, if a, his running back leaves the ball, uh, backfield. It's more like a running back who automatically just delays half a second and comes or waits for Jackson to make any sort of a move towards the edge of the pocket. And uh, they've, they've been, they've been frankly very effective at, at uh, frustrating Jackson. It's only when they've got the run game going again uh, that, that he's been able to, to lay his weight on the game again and, uh, and been, been very effective in that second half, for example, against the Bucks. So that sounds like a that sounds like a strategy that might work for the Saints. You have a player, one player. You could do one player on offense and defense if you like, but uh, one player who matches up really well against the Ravens. It's kind of weird to say Pete Werner, but I think he might be the wild card in having that quickness that I just don't think I've seen in some of the secondary players. To be honest with you, his short area quickness is is astonishing to be a linebacker again in his first year in coverage, but his, his, his ability to key and diagnose and his play speed to react immediately has stood out from the get-go. He does not hesitate at all. And he has very sound technique every single time you could tell he pays so much attention to his body positioning and he is not the biggest guy out there, but pound for pound, he is a hard hitting tackler for loss against guys that all things considered should run over him like a train. So he, to me is kind of the wild card for the saints at at defense. Um, Then again, in terms of how they match up well, I think both teams are experiencing a lot of injuries. And so it's hard to say, but I think this game might kind of weirdly come down to who's the better runner, Taysom Hill or Lamar Jackson and which one of them has kind of more success. Cause I don't think, Besides Alvin Kamara, there's a player on offense that is going to have palpable impact against what I think this game is going to be, which is really, you know, a grinder that I think Bill Belichick would be cheering on every second of it, that it's going to mostly be run plays. And and just like you said, those heavy packages, it's going to be 1940s NFL with uh, a little bit of creativity. 
It is, you know, it, it's really fun to see Belichick talk about old time football from the thirties and forties. And it's, it's like he was there and he wasn't, he's not that old, but, but it's like he was there. And he talks about these players from the, from, from that era. It's great to, great to see. And he's it's definitely a student of the game and not just a, a, a marvelous coach, a student of the, the history of the game is what I really mean. His dad wrote the best book I've ever read on football. And I recommend if anyone is interested in the X's and O's that, you go read Steve Belichick's book because that was what uh, Bill read when he was nine years old. And the fact that he was bartering his homework to watch film at age nine, I mean, huh. that to me is just a lineage of brilliant football minds that genuinely love learning about the game to this day. Great to have you on, Maddie. I, absolute pleasure, and you're extremely knowledgeable. And it went through this in a in a in a uh, very fast paced way, frankly. Although we you know we're over an hour here, uh, tell folks where they can find you. Uh, start with Twitter, and then also where where they find your other work. Sure. Yeah, Twitter is always really the hub for everything. It's at Maddie Hudak underscore nine four, and that's usually where I end up posting my articles or anything like that. If you happen to randomly be a Tulane Green Wave fan and have, uh, you know, the Varsity Network Learfield app, we're always on 104.1 The Spot for Tulane stuff. Um, and that's kind of the hubs in terms of, you know, my my content. It's, you know, broadcast is kind of harder to get people to be out there. But writing for USA Today, the Saints Wire, hoping to actually have a follow-up piece on Alante Taylor out quite shortly. Um so that's kind of where you can find those as well as usually on Twitter. All right. Outstanding, Maddie. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, it's the bye week. I'm looking for content and I'd love to talk football with you. If you're passionate about a Ravens topic, I really want to hear from you. I'll get back to you right away. DMs are always open on Twitter. Uh, other folks out there who've, who've given us a wonderful set of reviews over the years and whatnot. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, we really appreciate the recent uh, upsurge in that and uh, appreciate your time doing that. Maddie, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. This was great. I've always really, just to say, I've loved the Ravens and their approach to analytics. Um, so I've been looking forward to this matchup just from a intellectual perspective. And this was a really intellectual, deep discussion that I really enjoyed as well. I appreciate it, Maddie. And we'll talk to you next time on All Film right, Study. <laughs> you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.